Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Joining me once again is Maurice Claret, former Ohio State running back who led the team to a national title in 2002, but his struggles with drugs and alcohol eventually led to prison. Here to share his story in part two of this series is Maurice Claret. So you've obviously, Maurice, developed a passion for leadership and uh, pursuing it with a scholarly zeal. And you're, you're also taking that to a new foundation that you founded just a little bit over a year ago mm-hmm. by the name of the Red Zone. Yes. Tell us about that. I don't even know where to start. Well, the Red Zone was actually founded, uh, or, or the inception was in prison, and I didn't know it. Uh, when I first went to prison, there was a gentleman by the name of Mr. Kelaconte. And uh, Mr. Conte uh, actually is from Sierra Leone, and his father was a chief uh, in Sierra Leone for about 15 years. And I want to say maybe my first week in prison, he called me down to central office and he said, hey, Maurice, uh, while you're in prison, uh, I would like to uh, offer you some psychosocial and emotional support courses uh, while you're here to rehabilitate yourself. Uh, To make a long story short, uh, I start going to the courses, start hosting the courses and start applying a lot of what I had learned in the courses uh, inside of prison. You know, uh, they have different courses, uh, responsible adult culture, thinking for change. Uh, anger management, family courses. Uh, I remember we had a course with a book uh, by, by a guy by the name of Ishmael Bay. Uh, I read a long way gone. <clears throat> Excuse me. And these were um, uh, things that are, had start to help to refine me. Uh, when I got out of prison, I went to Omaha for two years, from 10 to 12 maybe. And I got out of Omaha. And, what brought you there? Uh, to play football. There was a oh. minor league football team oh. out there, and I went to go play. That's and right, and uh, yeah. when I uh, when I went to uh, uh, what is it called when I went to um, when I when I, when I went to Omaha I came back at ESPN had reached out to me and they wanted to do a film uh, at that time they called, it was a thirty for thirty I didn't know what a thirty for thirty was at that mm-hmm. point and uh, in the process of doing that um, um, I would go around the country and speak and I probably spoke to spoken to have spoken uh, to probably maybe two hundred people you know two hundred different uh, occasions and cities and and just deals. And uh, from there, uh, life just started to just move in a different direction. Life just started to like sort of take off, uh, for lack of better words. And um, uh, after all of these events uh, of some sorts, you would have different people come to me and ask me, like, you know, hey, you know, uh, how did you go from, you know, Maurice in 2006 to Maurice in 2013? And uh, there was never a book. Uh, there was a constant level of working on yourself. But I felt like some of the most pertinent things that I had learned 
uh, were uh, the things that I had learned through some of these courses, uh, these psychosocial and emotional courses, just getting to understand myself, uh, understand how to cognitively process information, understand how to be more aware, and, uh, and just things that I thought were useful to me that you didn't necessarily learn inside of a classroom, uh, but they were learned. Not, you wouldn't learn them in traditional schooling. Right. But I had learned these things when I was in prison. So one day I was in Toledo, Ohio, and I was speaking to a group of student athletes. And uh, when I was speaking to them, there was a gentleman uh, who brought me to the side after it was done. And through uh, him running sort of um, uh, little small groups after we were done, he asked me, he said, hey, you know, um, uh, you, you should think about doing some of this work. Uh, it's very similar to the work that you like. Uh, and it was the work that I was doing in prison, you know. Uh, and he was like, hey, you know, I run a behavioral health agency. And at that time, I was like, you know, I don't know what a behavioral health agency is. It was just like mm -hmm. kind of foreign to me. And uh, at this time also, the mental health and drug and alcohol board were sort of merging with one another. You take that and you um, compound that with me just having this light bulb click off of my head or the sense of awareness was like, yo, you do this for a living. Uh, you actually help people uh, to take this information and get this different information different to myself. I thought this stuff was a life changer for me in prison. And so I didn't have any credentials, any licensure, any anything. I just had done this stuff in prison for four years or three and a half years. Uh, and I was like, man, this stuff was a game changer to me. But I've seen how guys um, having peer-to-peer -peer counseling uh, really helped. You know, uh, a lot of people have the wrong stigma of prison. Prison is a lot more, um, uh, prison is a lot more about rehabilitation than what TV or people may perceive. I think that it's just 2,000 men and maybe, you know, 300 of those guys have the opportunity to get in there and improve themselves. Uh, but based upon availability and class size and just space inside of a prison, you don't have the time to develop everybody all day. You don't have the staff for it. And so, so a very small percentage of the, the population, call it 15% by those numbers that you just shared, has really a realistic opportunity to uh, change their lives through these classes and what have you to participate in them based upon staffing size and building mm -hmm. space and so it's never you never built a prison that said hey i'm about to uh put on a personal development wing you know what i'm saying nobody ever mm -hmm. says that like i'm about to go over here and i'm about to build 15 classrooms i'm about to hire a, a staff of mm -hmm. you know a uh, hundred counselors and social workers mm -hmm. uh to administer services to them that may be uh, detrimental to their development once they get out of prison and so it was literally like, hey, come in here, the first 15 people to sign this paper, you're in the class. Uh, through circumstance, I just happened to be one of those people who had been in the uh, facility to sign the paper. And so they can only take those people to work on them, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But I've seen uh, the continual work in prison work for those people while they're servicing a sentence. Like, you know, it's a lot easier to focus on it when you're incarcerated and have nothing to do with it when you get out and you have a million things to do. Sure. And so I say all that to say uh, I remember uh, when, it, when, when the light bulb hit me, it was like, oh, you can get into this work. So when I started to investigate what it actually was, uh, the gentleman started telling me what, what it was to be in, in, uh, involved in drug and alcohol and to be involved in the mental health uh, scope of things and the drug and alcohol scope of things, he said, hey, these things run hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And just in my personal life, understanding the problems that I had with drugs and alcohol, I said, I understand this very well, too. Uh, and this all just encompasses my life. Like, if you look at the mental health thing, like, I started taking mental health medication in September of 2006, and to this day, I still take it every day. I, I, I take and have been taking for the past 10 years to mm -hmm. help stabilize me. Yeah. And so... Um, you know, to, to say all that or, or just to, uh, to even be in a space to understand that uh, this is a real deal, this is a real issue, and to be able to work in this vein to make um, to make, make make me feel whole or to make me feel like this is something like that all my experiences weren't in vain and mm -hmm. that I can actually give back and help and uh, this can be a game changer for somebody else in their lives. Like, you know, I wanted to get involved and so for the next seven or eight months, you know, I went through policies and procedures and 
uh, hooked up with a consulting group, and we start, you know, rocking and rolling with one another. And uh, from there, 2015, the fall of 2015, the beginning part of 16, we were just sort of limping and crawling and walking. But then June of 2016, we uh, we opened the doors up, and uh, the Red Zone was kind of born. Okay, outstanding. And so, and, and the focus of them is to behavioral health. Yes, and it, it's two part, you know, because uh, yeah, yeah, behavioral health is, I guess, just the umbrella of it all. But mm-hmm. we deal with uh, the majority of what we do is we deal with um, uh, direct counseling and uh, uh, CPST services inside of schools with kids. CPST, uh, community psychiatric support treatment. Okay. And so we deal with those uh, things directly inside of these buildings uh, with kids. Okay. Um, and uh, we, we deal with those direct. Uh, we deal directly with those services inside of schools with kids. And I always like to call it. Um, it's more personal development than anything. You know, I think a lot of things that we teach are a lot of things that's needed for a lot of kids in either inner cities or urban environments are things that you would probably receive from a healthy family, be it with mother and father, and just uh, raising a child, I guess, uh, up under the American dream or in a holistic way. Um, and I saw, I feel we often fill those gaps and voids that may be missed at home, uh, be it with behavioral issues or be it with... Um, uh, issues uh, with focusing on these kids or, or getting these kids uh, to um, get out of get out of the, get out of their own way, uh, as I like to call it. You know, we just give you the skills to get out your own way to understand how to self govern, and to basically just help you to stay on track so you can uh, engage academically while you're in the classroom. Uh, we do a tremendous amount of focusing on helping kids with behavior, attendance, and grades. Uh, and just tying the therapeutic interventions uh, with their uh, personalized plans that they uh, get after their assessments. Uh, but it's the same thing with adults, you know, uh, for adults so with our outpatient drug treatment. We have, we have some housing for adults, obviously, some sober living. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the, um, the interventions that we do with them are just trying to cover five basic areas. Uh, we're trying to help with transportation, food, their medical cards, uh, their insurances, and making sure that they have uh, safe and positive places uh, to recreate uh, or socialize in. And just through that, uh, just basic premise, um, we are who we are, you know. And uh, and Bay, we we try to just help guys and girls carry out the treatment plan. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, treatment uh, for adults is a personal thing, uh, and it comes down to the individual, you know. And as and as hard as that may sound, and harsh as it may sound, uh, you know, everything just comes down to the person and what they want to do. You know, like literally, it comes down to. What do you want to do? How do you want to do it? And um, if you want to stay clean, we're just here to surprise, provide, a, provide the support and the necessary tools. You know, uh, we, we don't uh, we don't push Vivitrol on people, but we strongly recommend it uh, to try to get people to get assistance uh, medically uh, to help to help to stop their cravings or uh, to cover their opioid receptors to just uh, uh, use it as sort of like an insurance plan of some sorts. Mm-hmm. Uh, we try to push to stay a stay with the guys connected inside of uh, our sober living environments. And we try to uh, uh, find different things in the local community uh, for these guys to get involved in, be it with working out, uh, be it with different events, football games, baseball games, local uh, uh, scrappers, um, baseball game in the Youngstown area. And just trying to get these guys to do different things other than just, you know, uh, walking around from point A to point B, always going to treatment or just not living lives. I think one of the biggest um, things that um, that treatment centers do that I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with is that you isolate guys uh, and you act like these guys don't have a life. You know, at some point, 
uh, these guys have to go live and enact all of what you've taught them. You know what I'm saying? I think there's a period of isolation, uh, the beginning just a shock, but I think there has to be a heavy integration of real life and real uh, treatment. I think that's just like my personal belief in, in however, however people do it, they do it. Uh, but I think just uh, it's, it's sort of just like prison. When you're in prison, uh, there's a lot that you learn, but there's more that needs to be learned. Like when you get to a halfway house and you're halfway in the community, you're in halfway uh, inside of the, uh, the the facility. Uh, but I think uh, uh, treatment needs to be a lot like that, low-level security, uh, not super isolated, but having these guys deal with real issues that they would normally deal with once they're released from prison, but having the, uh, the, the infrastructure to support in place to help support and talk through these things. And I think like once you set a culture like that, where you're open and uh, and you can have these real uh, life tests, so to speak. Um, you know, it just it just it just it just creates a uh, it creates a more honest place. You know, it takes it away from uh, the, the cute pamphlet where you're isolated with the yoga and all those those things that uh, they are cool and therapeutic. And you know, to be honest with you, I can just go to a treatment center just to relax and just get away just because they're that nice. You know what I mean? Uh, but in, in regards to uh, to that being the end all of everything, I just don't think that um, it it, w- it would work like that for me. Uh, and that's just my personal opinion, and I'll, I'll continue to move forward. And I think when I talk to guys, guys like to know, like, man, look, you're dealing with some of the roughest, toughest, grittiest, uh, grimiest, and people who've been through the rough. And they're like, yo, I need help in real life. I need help when I hit the streets. I need help when I'm in the community. I need help when I'm at my house. And so integrating those things and making those things a real thing, I just think that uh, that's what that, uh, that that's what differentiates us from other people who may isolate people. So how would you describe the ideal candidate for your program, Maurice? I don't. I don't think there's an ideal candidate. I just think that um, you, uh, after a guy's assessed or a girl's assessed, and you figure out their needs, uh, you just say, "Hey, this is what we do, and this is how we do it." Uh, and if they buy in, they buy in. If they don't, you know, I wouldn't pressure them to stay. You know, go somewhere that fits for you. Now, uh, the, the, the thing about treatment, treatment doesn't look the same for everybody else because everybody's at some place different. But I think there's certain certain factors uh, that if you know that somebody's ready to stay clean, you know, in a, it's not like, hey, you're ready to stay clean and you're done for the rest of your life. But like that initial point to, hey, I want to say it, not just strongly saying it, but just the, just the amount of buy-in. Like everybody says it. Like, and I think a lot of people may scream for treatment because they're either going through a withdrawal, something crazy is happening. Uh, but then there's people who come in and say, you know what, man, I got to get my act together. You know what I'm saying? Like something has to change. And, um, and it's more uh, of, a, of, a, of a, I don't want to call it a surrendering sense, but it's like, okay, man, I got I to gotta fix this. You know, and there's a buy-in. Uh, and there's, a, there's a buy-in from day one to day 30. And those guys who buy-in and say, hey, I'm going to let you lead me, or I'm going to let whatever you all are, are doing lead me, that, those, guys, those are the guys who succeed. The guys who, uh, who, uh, who bitch and argue at every turn, those are the guys who traditionally don't succeed because they have to question everything. Grabbing those people that are ready, mm-hmm. when they're ready, is a big challenge here in our state. In mm-hmm. Northeast Ohio, oftentimes, people have to wait, sometimes more than a week. What kind of wait times? What, are, what is your experience uh, with uh, getting people right yeah, in when yeah, they I don't need even think, I, think that's a, I think that's a misunderstanding. They may have to wait for... Um, they, they would have to normally wait for a detox bed. Yes. Uh, but there are sober spaces that you can keep these people in immediately. Like, you can go put them into a sober place just to stop the addiction or to stop the using. Okay, let me let me grab you and I'll put you in a sober environment and based upon our resources and our connections throughout the area with people with detox facilities, we'll get you into a bed. You know, after your detox, then you come back out um, and, 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 and that and that becomes that becomes the start of it. You know what I mean? Uh, but you you can grab somebody in treatment as long as you have bed space opened up. Uh, you can grab you can grab somebody relatively fast. You know we can grab somebody fast and hold them, uh, and at least you've stopped the using. And you can do you can you, you can, this is what you can do. You can grab somebody. 
if every detox bed is filled up, you can go to and put them in an outpatient detox program. Once you're in an outpatient detox program and you're monitoring these guys on a daily basis to make sure they're not using, they're in a safe space, they're in a safe environment, and then you can shop to shop and look to see, like, hey, where's the bed open up? Who do I have a connection with? Who can get this guy in? What type of insurance does he have? And what, what are our legitimate options, okay? Okay, so you've got to stop the gap. And, and during that outpatient thing, you're giving them Suboxone or something to yeah, keep some, the cravings away? Yes, to keep the cravings away mm-hmm. and to make sure that these guys don't go into a withdrawal and, and uh and basically get sick and, and basically die. You know, we're, we're trying to stop that. And so from there, uh, we, we leave We leave from there. You um, you get them into a bed. After you get into a bed, uh, they go through uh, some some guys choose inpatient. That's is highly recommended, but other guys don't. You know, but after that, uh, treat, I believe treatment really starts once you get into a sober living environment. You know, uh, detox is a way to shock you and clean your system up. Inpatient is just another shock to say, hey, let me stabilize you and put you into an isolated facility. But if you're not in a, in a sober space or in a sober environment with people working on similar goals, it's no difference. You're not going to tell me that a guy who goes through uh, six or seven years of opioid addiction or an opioid problem or he goes through 20 years of drinking or 15 years of crack cocaine or meth or something like that, you're not going to tell me that you stuck him somewhere for 45 days and he's cured of all his diseases. You know, he may feel better physically. He may want to do it, but just habits. Habits have not changed. Habits. His habits is thinking. His habits is thinking. His habits is thinking. It's just it doesn't change in 45 days. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Uh, and that's that's the crux of it, and that's mm-hmm. what you're fighting, you know. And uh, and I think that uh, – and I'll say I'm, I'm, I'm in the industry, and I'll say this. I think that there's a lot of manipulation to um, – exploit uh, people in their most vulnerable situations for money you know uh, a lot of times like you, you can you can you, you can take the same model in a sober living environment and you can get the same uh, level of treatment that you have in an inpatient setting but the difference is thousands of dollars you know what are some of the signs that someone out there would be able to recognize or tips that they would see where they could recognize oh this is a bad situation I should I should avoid this they're exploiting. Um, yeah, I think it's very easy. Uh, if you go to a facility and the only thing these people do is a, a detox or inpatient, you know, uh, that's the biggest red flag right there. You know, uh, that's because they have the highest level of reimbursement and basically they're saying like, hey, let me just, uh, uh, the, the problem is so heavy in Ohio and they have so many uh, people waiting to get on the list. I'll just stay in a space where we get the highest level of reimbursement and we'll push them off to somebody else. So philosophically in treatment, you may have uh, one person who detoxes, then another person who uh, philosophically does something with inpatient, then you send them to another guy to house them, and then another company to do outpatient treatment. That's like saying, let me go to YSU to read the playbook. Let me go to Notre Dame to learn offense. Let me go to uh, uh, Capital University to learn uh, uh, how our offensive line plays. And then philosophically, let me go be housed in Michigan and, and then play at Ohio State every Saturday. It's just like it makes no sense when you just do it. So the, the continuum of care and continuity and the same philosophy from top to bottom. But it takes a lot more effort and the reimbursement for services are a lot less when you get into the outpatient sober living thing. So speak to those families that are plunged into crisis right now mm-hmm. and they're helping their loved one. Uh, vet the programs yes. and find a program like you're talking about. What advice would you give to them? Uh, call us. <laughs> yeah, I was going to call them myself. Just the, the the serious part is just to see who has uh, all of the pieces in, in place. To see who has the detox, the inpatient, 
uh, be it residential or be it a, a sober living facility, and who really promotes and talks about case management. Have these people give you examples of case management that they have done. If they can't give you a heavy load of case management, a heavy load of resources that they have in different communities, heavy loads of things that they have done in regards to helping people out when it's the last step, then I would probably stray away from it. That's just my personal opinion because, like, it, it, it's like doing everything to get down to the goal line. And then once you get to the goal line, it's time to score. You say, oh, like, you know, let's just give, like, let's give the, the playbook to somebody else. You've done everything to mm. go score the touchdown mm. up under, you know, Coach Trestle's playbook. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to use um, Capital University's playbook on the one. No, that's not what you're supposed to do. We're, we're trying to score a touchdown. We're trying to get the win. We're trying to get a mm. victory. And so uh, uh, most of the times, even when you assess people, fundamentally when you assess people and figure out what their problems were, for the majority of people, their direct linkage is the things that you provide in case management. You don't understand where I'm coming from? Yeah. They tell you an assessment that I've had a problem with employment, stable housing, getting an insurance card or finding different benefits that I can get from the government to help me stabilize an individual. Being in safe spaces, or um, or I forget, I don't know how many I've named thus far, but so all those keys yes. though that came out yeah, in those, the assessment, those, those are the things that you need to be addressing all the way along. Don't, they, these things drove the majority of people to use drugs. Hmm. Just think about it. Yeah, these fundamental things drove these people. Yet when we go to treatment, we talk about drugs, 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 drugs. Okay, they know they on drugs. They wouldn't be in your damn face if they wasn't. You know, they wouldn't be here. Like, we get it. We get understanding addiction. They know they shouldn't be using it. They know they shouldn't be doing all that. You know what I mean? Uh, and, you know, once you get by, once you get down here, uh, it becomes uh, it becomes uh, the actual crux of why they use. But if you don't help them solve that, hell, this person about to relapse. For the greatest part, they, they may do it. And it's not even, it's just a level of frustration. You know, in life in general, just talk about life in general. People find it cumbersome to even think. You know, it's hard to think. It's hard for responsible adults with college education is a thing so what the hell do you think will happen to a person in recovery excuse my language you know but i guess i get serious you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. like if you're in recovery or if you're like what we deal with people in the most deprived situations in in, in schools and in, 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 as adults you know what i'm saying it's just serious stuff man what you think these people are like they, they like these are the most responsible thinking people no you know what i mean but it, it becomes a game it becomes commercialized it becomes it becomes everything with like serious issues and these people like like the story that you told me before we started that's a serious issue that's not like a fluff game it's not a cool flyer it's somebody's about to die you know what i'm saying but and, and the people who are the caregivers you're supposed to care from top to bottom about this stuff you know what i'm saying and um the fact that it's so new there the, the the treatment centers are like cowboys you know there's no there's no infrastructure there's no there's no standard, you know, you have good facilities, you have bad facilities, but there's no standards, you know, like if you go to hospitals, they have different grades and uh, different accreditations, and you, you kind of know who has what in place, but you don't have an infrastructure in place for either mental health facilities or drug and alcohol facilities, so, you know, it's kind of like you get what you get, you know what I mean, uh, so you have, you have a lot of, uh, you know, I don't know, I, I, I get sentimental and serious about this stuff because I, I've seen, like, I, I've seen people just abuse people, you know what I mean, and you see people in some of the most vulnerable states, and I can give you plenty of examples where uh, there was a lady who was going to give me $25,000, right, for a month's stay for her son. I said, lady, right, don't do that to yourself. I don't want to take your money like that. You know, I can get on the phone from, she's from Delaware County. If she ever hears it, she'll tell you I'm telling the truth. Another lady from Texas, right? Mm-hmm. I said, don't give me that money. I said, uh, I can give you another guy. I don't want to name his confidentiality, but they're from 
uh, where they from? They're from Newark, you know, same situation. What do I have to get 20 grand? No. Like 20 grand hurts an average family out here to, or to have you remortgage a house and sell a car, or go get a crazy mm-hmm. loan. You don't need to do that. I can provide the same level of treatment for this individual uh, for a, a third of the price. Just put them in this environment and make sure these services are administered. You know, it's not that it's not that hard. You know, with all these people who sucking money out of people in America uh, because their kids going through some vulnerable stuff, you know, it's crazy. It's, you know, it's ridiculous. But that's just my personal opinion. But I've been on the flip side of it. Uh, where uh, uh, um, you need the help and you just don't know where to go. You know what I mean? And, and, and I've been vulnerable. So me being in that situation makes me want to do the right thing for the people who are in that situation or families in that situation. Wow. Maurice, this has really been enlightening. Cool. I tell you what, this has been um, a, uh, a lot deeper than what, what I had anticipated. It was just a, a delight and quite a... I've been doing this for a while. And so the depth of uh, your knowledge, I really appreciate your spending time today to to share that with me and with our listeners. Um, This is uh, profound. A lot of the the information that you've shared and the the little bit of an education that you've shared for them today. So um, what uh, final thoughts would you have for our listeners? And, you know, kind of our listening audience is... is, uh, you know, those that are sub, uh, struggling with substance use disorder, uh, specifically opioid, mm-hmm. and their families as well as communities out there. Um, we're in the middle of an epidemic, and we've got uh, full communities that are really at their wit's end in terms of how to proactively go after this. Day in and day out, we're uh, pounded with negative messages about what's going on. But clearly, there's a lot of positive things that are happening and people, leaders, that are taking and making strides to make a difference out there, such as yourself. So what final thoughts would you have for our listeners? I don't know. I think I have a final thought. Um, I, I think this is a great form. You know, you wouldn't normally get this on a traditional radio station. I say to the information, stuff like this is uh, huge. You know what I mean? I guess if uh, if you're a listener, uh, even spread this word, spread uh, this podcast. You know, we have people... Uh, who dedicate themselves or, or make it their mission to raise levels of awareness or lift platforms of people like that. Like this is like just old fashioned. It was radio back in the day, but now we have technology uh, and we can spread these words. You can spread these links. You can spread it to a friend or, or somebody who may be struggling. And maybe that may give them a level of awareness to know what they're dealing with. You know, it's no different than you go play on a football team and a coach sit down and tell you, hey, this is what we're dealing with. This is what's going on across the ball. This is who you're about to fight. And the more information that you uh, accumulate, uh, the more confidence you have and you know what you have to do to get over it. And so I think there's a lot of people who just don't know what to do. Uh, but finding platforms like this one and like other stuff uh, or other information to where you can understand treatment, understand that you do have options and understand what a good place looks like. You know, I think that's uh, that's one of the big just thing that popped into my mind. You know, just uh, just learn, learning to share these platforms and this information with people who could benefit from it. And hopefully they're more informed and in, in, uh, in the standard of what people do and how they treat people uh, can change. Wow. Well, thank you again, Mo. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Joining me today was Maurice Claret, the former Ohio State running back who led the team to an undefeated season in their first national championship in 36 years. In our two-part series, Maurice shared a little bit about his time at OSU and his struggles away from the field with drugs and alcohol and how eventually he turned his life around, dedicating his life today to helping those in recovery from substance use disorder. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. 
This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.